0: Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio-only podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is on Fed policy, inflation, and more, and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Levowitz, global market strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. So, it's been quite a start to 2022. Thinking back to the beginning of this year, things really started with concerns that inflation perhaps wasn't going to be as transitory as people originally thought. The Federal Reserve simultaneously came out in the month of January and made a quite aggressive and hawkish pivot relative to what people were expecting. And as we saw that inflation was going to be around for longer than people had penciled in, and as we saw that the Fed perhaps was not going to be as tolerant of this above-target inflation you began to see markets become increasingly uncomfortable with the dynamic at play. What really caught our attention and a lot of clients' attention during the first quarter of the year was the shift in stock bond correlations from negative territory into positive territory. And again, somewhat eye-opening for a lot of investors to see their stocks and their bonds losing money in lockstep with one another. We thought a lot about what was going on at that period of time. And taking a step back, if you think about the equations for pricing a share of stock or a bond, the one common variable is interest rates. And so the way that we think about it is correlations are unstable over time. We actually saw positive stock bond correlations from the 1970s through the mid 1990s. And when inflation and monetary policy are in the driver's seat, that's when stocks and bonds tend to sell off together. Obviously, the bond market doesn't like the idea of a more hawkish Federal Reserve and higher rates. The equity market doesn't like an idea. Of a more hawkish Fed as well. And so, what's been interesting to observe is as we've watched concerns shift here, and I'll talk about this in just a couple of minutes, but as we've watched concerns shift from inflation to more of the impact of elevated inflation and a more hawkish Fed on growth, we've seen that negative correlation snap back into place. But I do think that investors need to be conscious of the risk that exists around correlations going forward, particularly given what developed in the month of March and unfortunately remains ongoing, which is the situation in Eastern Europe involving Russia and Ukraine. The impact of all of that on commodity prices has been fairly spectacular. And while we do think that we've seen at least a local peak in commodity prices, we do recognize there is a risk of another shock, another leg higher in commodity prices, which by our lights would bring that stock bond correlation Back into positive territory and investors not necessarily finding themselves with the protection that they thought they had. And so it was a tumultuous start to the year. That's the bottom line. We had inflation that's stickier than expected, a more hawkish Federal Reserve, stocks and bonds selling off together, and then the icing on the cake was very much the invasion of Ukraine by Russia at the end of February. So with that as the way things started, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about how things are going. We can see the impact of what's going on, particularly the impact of higher food and energy prices on consumers and on consumption patterns. More specifically, one of the benefits to my seat is I'm able to look at data from the Chase side of our business, and we have seen a drastic shift In the spending across lower income cohorts, much greater focus on core, much less of a focus on discretionary. And we do think that that's going to persist for the foreseeable future. And so we have consumers beginning to retrench a little bit as they're forced to spend more at the pump, forced to spend more filling up their fridges. We have a Fed that has come out and said that they're prioritizing controlling inflation overgrowth. And so what started as a hawkish pivot and sticky inflation and Russia's invasion of Ukraine has now translated into a shift in consumption patterns, a shift in consumer behavior, and a Fed that has come out and basically said, we're willing to let the economy roll over if it means that we can rein inflation back in. So what is our expectation for the Fed here going forward? Well, both the Fed and the market do see the Fed funds rate above 3%. By the end of this year, and we would agree generally with the direction that markets are pricing Fed policy to move in. We think that at least the 50 basis point hike in July is on the table in the cards. The risk there is undoubtedly the upside. And we think that there's probably another 50 basis point hike coming in September as well. And potentially, if things begin to cool off on the inflation front, we think that the Fed could return to a 25 basis point hiking cadence by the end of this year. But, you know, the idea, and I think we might have talked about this in a prior episode, the idea that the Fed is going to take a meeting off before the end of 2022 is effectively off the table no pun intended. And the key risk here is the same as the key risk at the start of the year, which is that the Fed overdoes it. And that risk is very much rising. So let's talk about recession risk, given that backdrop. At any point in time in the United States economy, the risk of recession over the next 12 months is about 15%. We think that in the current environment, that probability is closer to 40%. But we very much view this risk as being backloaded in 2022 and into the beginning of 2023. The reality, again, is that the Fed is slamming on the brakes from a monetary perspective at the same time as fiscal policy is transitioning from being a tailwind to being a headwind. And, you know, there's a lot that gets written. There's a lot that gets said about accumulated savings and $2 trillion of excess savings accumulated during the pandemic. That's going to allow the consumer to keep spending. That's going to allow the consumer to keep its head above water into year end. But the question I'm asking myself today is whether the consumer actually decides to spend those funds. One of the things that we've noticed, again, not just in the Chase data, but in the data from the Federal Reserve, as well, is that the use of revolving credit is beginning to rise. We think that's, frankly, people continuing to sit on a little bit of extra cash and using their credit cards to fill their gas tanks and stock their fridges. And so it does look like there is a recession on the horizon. Again, we're not going to definitively make that call quite yet, but the probability is much higher than it was when we started the year. That begs the question of what a potential recession would look like. And Our expectation is still that any recession we see will be relatively mild. We always come back to the question of, is there some sort of imbalance or are there some imbalances in the economy that could make a downturn particularly uncomfortable? And we oftentimes look at the four most cyclical sectors of the economy to really gauge that risk. And so on the consumer side, this is things like housing and autos. On the business side, it's things like investment spending, And inventories, and frankly, when we look at all four of those indicators today, none would suggest that there is an excess that has built up which is going to be very painful to unwind pretty much across the board, with the exception of autos, where auto sales remain below averages for reasons that are well understood. Effectively, everything else, whether it's non-residential investment as a share of GDP, inventories as measured as day of sales, residential investment as a share of GDP, these are effectively in line with their long-run averages. And so when recession comes, and we do see that risk as rising into the end of this year and the beginning of next year, we think that it's going to be relatively Mild. And we do get a lot of questions. You know, Atlanta Fed's GDP Now tracker is flirting with zero for the second quarter. We obviously had a negative print in the first quarter. Well, A lot of people believe that two negative quarters of growth is what constitutes a recession. And that's not necessarily the case. It's actually up to the National Bureau of Economic Research Business Cycle Dating Committee. They are the official scorekeepers when it comes to recession. And so even if we were to see a negative quarter of growth in 2Q, that would not guarantee that a recession had occurred. We need to wait for the guys in Cambridge to provide us with their assessment of the situation. And so the bottom line here is that there are still a lot of questions that remain unanswered. What's the trajectory of inflation? What is Fed policy going to look like? When will the next recession materialize? But the path forward is becoming clearer. That said, people keep asking me, what's it going to take to break the market out of this funk? And, you know, I think the reality here is that in absence of any new information, markets are going to continue to trade sideways for the foreseeable future. So that new information, eventually we'll get it, and it could be good, it could be bad. It could mean that markets begin to move higher. It could mean that markets take another leg lower. What could go right? Let's start on a positive note. Well, inflation could begin to surprise to the downside. The Fed could subsequently become less hawkish. Corporate profits, which there's obviously a lot of concern about, could prove to be more resilient than expected. But on the flip side of that, what could go wrong? Well, inflation could fail to cool as expected. That could lead the Fed to become increasingly hawkish. And as I mentioned earlier in some of my opening remarks, we could see commodity prices take another leg higher if there were some unforeseen shock to the global commodity complex more broadly. So the reality is that everybody knows what's going wrong What we need is something to go right. What we're dealing with is an absence of good news, but I do think that markets will become better behaved during the second half of this year. It is also very important to remember equity markets peak before recessions start and they trough before recessions end. So just because the economy is struggling later on this year doesn't mean that things could begin to turn around in a more sustainable way when it comes to equity markets and potentially risk assets more broadly. And so as we look ahead, how are we thinking about investing? There are a couple of themes that I would advise people to implement in portfolios as they think about navigating the back half of this year and into 2023. The first is that on the equity side, we continue to like those industries, sectors, and companies that are able to generate profits in a robust nominal growth environment. You know, if you're an industrial company, if you're an energy company, if you're a materials company, it's the nominal story that matters. If you're a tech company, it's the real story that matters. And so we do continue to lean in to those more cyclical parts of the market But we also recognize that given the sell-off, which has occurred in technology and growth more broadly, that some of these names, particularly the profitable names, are beginning to look more attractive from a valuation perspective. And so very much focused on owning assets that can provide growth at a reasonable price. We're not trying to bottom fish. We're not trying to overextend ourselves. We're trying to own companies that can generate earnings in the macro environment that we see playing out because effectively those earnings will be a safety net if markets were to take another turn lower. On the fixed income side, we continue to have a preference for securitized paper. We think that the backup in yields and spreads has created a variety of opportunities. We'd be leaning more into things like investment grade, given some of the risks that are building on the horizon. And then, as always, we believe that investments in fixed income and equities should be complemented by investments in alternatives. And core real assets, things like real estate and infrastructure, continue to look very interesting given the inflation protection the income and the diversification that they can all provide. But we also believe there will be an opportunity for distressed and special situation investors at some point here down the road, particularly if the Fed overdoes it and knocks the economy into recession. And so lots of continued cross currents here in the middle of 2022. Again, we're trying to see the forest for the trees. We recognize what's going wrong. We recognize that there's an absence of things going right. And we do think that recession risk has risen, which is really informing the approach to portfolio construction that we just covered here at the end of the conversation. And so as always, thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts and on our website. Thank you. Recorded on June 22nd, 2022
1: not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for informational purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own financial professional, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be appropriate to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment, It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments, and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by JPMorgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https://am.jpmorgan.com/global/privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Incorporated, both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon, and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority— in other European jurisdictions, by JP Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL, in Asia Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated JP Morgan Asset Management Asia Pacific Limited, or JP Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. JP Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, company registration number 197601586K. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. JP Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trust Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in sections 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001 Commonwealth by JPMorgan Asset Management Australia Limited ABN 5514-383-2080. AFSL 376-919. For all other markets in APAC, to intended recipients only. For U.S. only, if you are a person with a disability and need additional support in viewing the material, please call us at 1-800-343-1113 for assistance. Copyright 2021, JPMorgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.